1: And welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very interested today to be speaking to Dr. Lucy Donkin about her book titled Standing on Holy Ground in the Middle Ages, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. In the book, Dr. Duncan restores a medieval perspective by demonstrating the importance of engagement with the surface of the ground across a range of contexts. Medieval Christians laid down paving of various kinds, spread the ground with textiles and vegetation, and marked it using ashes. In Discourse and in Practice, Dr. Duncan shows in the book that medieval Christians used the ground as a platform to demonstrate uh, piety, impiety, and religious affiliation as well as other forms of status or identity. This book examines um, the ground in a lot of different senses in the idea of medieval Christianity primarily, though engages a bit with other religions, um, and is a really interesting investigation of quite literally something that we engage with all day, every day, practically, and yet I'm sure that I'm not the only one that doesn't often think about the ground. So I'm really excited today to be speaking with Dr. Duncan, um, about her book. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Dr. Melcher, um, Miranda, thank you very much indeed for the invitation to uh, speak with you today about standing on holy ground uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, I hope it will make people more conscious of the ground they tread on. Um, writing it certainly certainly made uh, me more conscious of my everyday uh, interactions uh, with it.
1: So to start us off, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself a bit, your academic background, and explain How you came to write this book?
2: Certainly. So I suppose I'm a cultural historian and art historian of the Middle Ages um, with a sort of an abiding interest in perceptions uh, of place. So I kicked off with an undergraduate degree in ancient and modern history. Uh, In fact, there was lots of medieval history in the mix, despite the title of the degree. And then I went on to a master's and a uh, PhD in medieval art history at the Courtauld Institute of Art. So both my uh, MA dissertation and the PhD thought in various ways about figurative floor mosaics uh, in the Italian peninsula. So I was uh, initially looking at ones in the southeast in Apulia and then for the doctoral research uh, on uh, mosaics in, in the Po Valley. And I got interested in the topic on a family holiday to be honest. We were visiting um, Apulia, we we visited Otranto Cathedral and Otranto has this remarkable extensive mosaic floor uh, from from the mid 12th century and the design is arranged around a tree in the centre of the nave. So you you walk in through through the the main doors and there it is stretching in front of you scenes uh, to either side uh, in, in the branches. So thanks to the family holiday. Um, Thanks also to another student on the MA uh, for really starting me off on this research trajectory that ultimately, I think, kind of led led to the book. So he asked what the significance would be of someone walking up the tree. So sort of walking up the pavement, but also in a sense, uh, walking up the tree as well. And so the MA dissertation uh, thought about that. But in many ways, I think I've been trying to answer that question ever since. So after the PhD, I wanted to think a bit more broadly about the surface of the ground more generally. So not simply a particular type of of pavement decoration, um, the the sort of figurative floor mosaics, but actually about the surface of the ground uh, wherever we might uh, meet it as a point of encounter between people and places. Uh, and especially sacred places. So that that was uh, always uh, a key point of interest. The British Academy, so thanks to them uh, too, kindly funded a three year postdoc, which was a really wonderful opportunity to to think in depth about this, but also think quite broadly to explore the various fields and topics uh, that met uh, in the phenomenon of of holy ground. Um, And uh, although it took uh, a much longer time than three years to write the book, It was set in many ways uh, from from that point in terms of its parameters, in terms of the various questions uh, and and sort of points of of focus. So that's really, um, yeah, the potted version of what was quite a long process.
1: Well, it seems in a lot of senses that the fact this was a long process actually (laughs) brings a lot to the book because you approach the question through a number of different lenses and layers, Um, and in fact. You explain it in the beginning of your book as a stratigraphic approach. Can you explain to us kind of what this is?
2: I will, I will do my best. Uh, I, I worried later that it, that it sounded too, too scientific, and I don't really mean it in a technical way. Um, but essentially, uh, the sort of idea of stratigraphy uh, and the stratigraphic approach was simply a way of acknowledging and investigating the different layers that came together to inform encounters with, with particular places. So by this this point in in the sort of genesis of the idea, I wanted to think not simply about at this point, people walking or lying on decorated paving, but also about different kinds of surfaces, about the, the earth itself, but also about the temporary floor coverings like textiles and vegetation that might be spread on top of the ground or on top of paving and about the bodies of the dead as well. So uh, all the sorts of things that were lying um, beneath ground uh, as well. So I suppose for me, each of those elements, their identity, their materiality, their associations in a particular cultural context and the relationship uh, between all of these layers contributed to the significance of the encounter just as much as the actions of the people involved did. And so I was trying to think about all these layers, uh, the, all these elements as, um, as a sort of temporary whole. Now, I said I wasn't using stratigraphic in a technical sense, but I have to admit I did think of this Bit anachronistically, uh, like geological cross section, like a, a sort of core sample, um, plunging down through through the the ground in particular sites uh, of of interest. It, it's not a common medieval way of visualising the ground, although there are a few examples. But to to retreat from science for the moment. Um, I also, I suppose, thought of it a bit like the side of a layer cake or a club sandwich or, you know, something like that. So I was always, I suspect, conceiving of it um, as a vertical stack of layers, which I was uh, seeing from the side. I think it's a helpful sort of metaphor uh, for (laughs) readers
1: today who may not be so familiar with medieval Christian practices or have been to a particular number of medieval Christian churches. Um, So having these anachronistic visual methods might help us connect with this. Um, I at least found it quite useful.
2: I'm I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I guess the what I did, what I did ultimately feel was that there was evidence for these layers, even if the way I'd been approaching them visually was a little bit, um, you know, of of my time and uh, and and space. That I think we could see in the material and textual evidence um, that these these um, kind of momentary um, assemblages of, of layers were there, and that people did think about them at the time. They were aware of them, but they perhaps might think about them in a more embodied way. Uh, Mm. So from the perspective of the person above ground, sometimes even from the perspective of the person below ground too. So that would be, I suppose, to think that one would be quite self-conscious, perhaps, if you were sort of standing on a red red carpet, you would be aware of of yourself, of the carpet, perhaps of the ground beneath. So there is an embodied awareness, I think, uh, of these layers, even, even if the sort of stratigraphy was um, was not necessarily being visualized. Mm. So, so yeah, I guess each of the chapters then focused on a different dynamic of contact, and and often in, involves sort of multiple uh, examples of these of these configurations of layers. So, so, I guess holy feet on bare ground is is a really direct one. Um, some more complex ones. Um, you know, extend to to people above grounds and below ground as well. So that's sort of how it it fed into the different chapters too.
1: and that provides the perfect introduction to our next set of questions, which are going to be exploring some of these dynamics and moments of um interaction. So let's start off with an example you just mentioned that is one of perhaps one of the more straightforward ones, though maybe also at least to me, one of the ones that was. The least similar in thinking to today um, but you introduce us in chapter one to vestigia which first off if you could explain what that is to those of us who are not um, medieval christian historians that would be lovely um, but then explain to us this idea of how do holy feet create holy ground
2: uh, I will. I will do my best. I think there are some modern parallels, as I see uh, sort of hand handprints and footprints of the stars in pavements, mm. for example. So vestigia are indeed um, footprints. They can be uh, other sorts of bodily imprints as well and, and, and simply kind of traces um, uh, when, when um, the word is used kind of more, uh, more generally. But uh, for my purposes, I was particularly interested in footprints. There's even a hoof print, I think, at one point uh, in, in the chapter. Um, and, and to think about that as a way of um, focusing uh, on holy um, kind of holy feet and, uh, and holy ground. So I guess in the previous research in, in, the, um, in, in the doctoral and, and master's work, when I'd been focusing on pavement decoration, really with a sort of art historical hat on, the dynamic had always been about an existing sacred space, like a church, with which worshippers came into contact. Uh, so it was already sacred and then people might engage with it in various ways. And there was also, I suppose, a possibility that the action of treading or uh, the anticipation of someone treading on the surface restricted the range of subject matter that was suitable for the floor surface. There was a so there was a, a potential negative connotation to the idea of walking so I suppose by broadening things out and by taking a more interdisciplinary approach by sort of honouring my history interests as well as my art history interests, I wanted to include a different type of contact uh, in which the action of treading could itself be sanctifying, could, um, could create a holy place, could create holy ground as, we, as we've said it was quite a direct and unmediated encounter between foot and earth as well between body and ground which also seemed a good a good place to start. So absolutely how, kind of how did holy feet create holy ground? Uh, as a kind of contact relic, uh, I suppose. so there are types of relic which came into contact uh, with holy individuals during their life. sometimes also holy individuals, Uh, and relics after their death and so it's uh, really through physical contact that there's a transmission of sanctity uh, from the holy body to the um, kind of uh, to the object or in this case the place because within and beyond the holy land sites were venerated not just as the location of particular events um, maybe events in salvation history, or moments where saints had performed miracles, things like that. But also as places where Christ and the saints had stood, or had uh, or had knelt. So the way in which these places are described is is often um, including the physical presence and the physical kind of type of physical contact uh, that. Um, that the holy holy individuals had uh, with the place or in this case the holy feet uh, with with the ground so this could be extended to the holy land more generally which is sometimes described as the land trodden by Christ but because of this interest in in sort of standing <laughs> I was particularly interested in sites which retained a footprint as a proof of presence. So not all the sites that are venerated in this way have imprints, um, but a few do. uh, So the site of the Ascension is is a particular um, kind of example that I look at, but also I think a press point of of reference and a precedent for, for other examples And so these corporeal traces, these vestigia, um, were particularly important in cases where there wasn't a body to venerate. So as with Christ, who descended into heaven, but so Mary and incorporeal angels like St. Michael. So where you didn't have a tangible body to venerate, um, the the imprint was a really suggestive um, indication of absence, uh, but also an indication of of presence uh, as well. And- Another aspect of that phenomenon that I suppose interested me was the fact that, that these places which had been transformed through, through contact um, were holy enough for soil, for rocks uh, to be taken elsewhere and venerated and, and even used to, to sanctify other places. So that's part of a wider phenomenon of relics of place. It's not just those places that are marked by footprints. uh, But nonetheless, I found it interesting that there could be a whole chain of sanctity involved, and it might lead outside of the Holy Land, uh, for example. And, And another, I suppose, point of contact between these holy um, kind of holy places with with uh, holy footprints was the way in which the materiality of the the, the imprint kind of corresponded to wider trends of um, of church decoration and floor decoration too. So often they're understood to be imprinted in in marble, for example, um, just exactly the same kinds of materials that were that were being used in, in um, pavement decoration, in churches that were were not shaped by the physical presence of a, of a holy uh, individual. So they, these, these one-off sites seem to, to have connections with other holy places.
1: So as we move then from the idea of holy ground is created by holy people... Um, Obviously, this is not the only way in which ground is made holy. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't have very many churches. So you talk about sort of other ways in which the ground was, in some sense, sort of demarcated um, for holiness or sanctified, I suppose. Um, And in fact, part of the sort of rituals around this um, end up on the cover of your book. Um, For those of you listening, you obviously don't have the benefit of the visuals Um, but one of the lovely things about this book is that it does actually have beautiful images throughout um, that show a bunch of these examples. Um, And it's always an interesting question to find out how how something ends up on the cover of a book, but particularly in your book, you have multiple images throughout. So if you could talk us through, obviously without, sadly, the benefit of being able to show us the visual, um, what is the image on the cover of the book? What is it showing What does that tell us about relations with the ground? Um, And why did you choose it for the cover?
2: Um, Yeah, so the the cover image is an illumination from a late medieval manuscript from a Missal Pontifical. So the important part of that that is the pontifical bit. Um, It's a book containing the ceremonies which would be conducted by a bishop. And these ceremonies included the ritual of church consecration, the the way in which most church buildings uh, achieved, I guess, their sacred sacred status. So the image shows the moment when the bishop um, would inscribe the letters of the Greek and Latin alphabets on the floor of the church in the shape of a diagonal or a St. Andrew's uh, cross. And he'd he'd do this either because the cross itself, the whole cross, was um, marked out in ashes on the ground and he simply had to inscribe the letters, or in some cases there might be a little heap of ashes for, for each letter. What's actually happening in in the illumination is this um, rather magnificent uh, sort of fictive space has been equipped with a a, a yellow and what looks like a a yellow and green checkerboard tiled floor. And so in this case, uh, it's helping the bishop um, write the beginning letters of of the alphabet. And indeed some um, kind of representations of the alphabets in pontificals um, written quite large to allow the bishop to, to follow them during the ceremony. Useful for Greek, uh, perhaps less, less needed for, for the Latin alphabet. Um, some of them even have that checkerboard pattern uh, as as well. So that's that's what's going on. And um, I guess just to sort of explain a bit more about the ceremony, why you know why you would why you would do this Liturgical procedures for consecrating a church differed over time. They differed from place to place. But that alphabet cross was really quite widespread. It was quite long-lasting as uh, an element within church consecration in Latin Christianity. So there are a few illustrations. There are many more um, interpretation, textual interpretations of what it all meant, um, sometimes understood uh, uh, in terms of uh, spreading uh, sort of Christianity throughout the world, given a, uh, a geographical connotation, sometimes about um, uh, inscribing um, kind of faith uh, in people's uh, hearts and minds. Um, and we actually also find some examples of pavement decoration that seem to allude to the fact that the ground had been treated in, um, in this way uh, in, um, in, in the ceremony. And it seemed like an, you know, appropriate topic uh, to, to discuss as a second chapter in the book, along with holy footprints, because of this sort of this shared act of of impression, and because of its role in creating sacred space. But to be honest, it wasn't my first choice for a cover image. Uh, my first idea was uh, a bit naive. It was far too visually complex. It was confusing. Um, it was uh, an image of, of uh, the ascension, but actually uh, with a number of other things going on. And the wise the editorial team at Cornell said, Oh, I think, you know, maybe something a little bit more direct. Uh, and so because this ceremony did play such an important part, in shaping the sort of holy ground that people engage with, uh, in the rest of the book, um, I went. I went with their suggestion, and I think they were. They were definitely. They were definitely right in the end.
1: <laughs> it was a very striking image, um, and it was not something I had ever come across as a particular practice. Um, and it was really fascinating to read about and see how intimate, in a lot of ways, the connection with the ground was in creating. These sacred spaces. So um, I'm really glad you sort of explained that to us and had the image of it as well. Um, because it does seem to really have been, I, I can understand why it was so lasting. It seems to have been a moment that kind of a lot of people, both the people doing the inscribing and people watching this process, um, there was a very, you know, strong ritualistic element to it. Um, and that continues in a lot of the aspects that you're talking about here. Um, again, as we spoke at the beginning we often don't think about the ground. It doesn't maybe <laughs> seem special to us or ritualistic or invested with meaning. Um, and yet it is, and you have quite a lot of examples. So we've talked about sort of two, one about uh, not a lot of, an un, as you said, an unmediated encounter. So bare skin on bare earth. Now we have inscription for a sacred space by a um, sort of not quite holy person, but someone invested in religious order. Um and the next example that you talk about is perhaps a little bit different from those, is, is violent, is trampling. Um, the idea of trampling something underfoot. Um, and yet, even if that word immediately evokes an idea of violence, you know, and that, oh, that shouldn't be sacred, that that's completely antithetical to this. You actually explore in the book, you sort of do compare and contrast, looking at ways in which Christianity, Judaism, and Islam around this period. Approached trampling and show that there's really quite a lot of nuance about how this particular kind of encounter between people and the ground was thought about. Can you tell us a little bit about these similarities and
2: differences between the approaches to trampling? Indeed, so I, I um, there are six chapters in all, and I, I think I can conceived of them as as three pairs. So. Um, after the two that, that kind of focus particularly on, on the creation of, of sacred space, that the next two really started, I suppose, returned to the idea of standing. I'd, I'd started off with in chapter one, uh, but thought about the, I guess, positive and negative connotations uh, of that. So uh, chapter three, indeed, thought about uh, trampling and then the, the following one about sort of more positive um, implications. So, trampling is an action, I suppose, that we usually take to denote a negative attitude to the object, or in some cases, person who's being trodden underfoot. Depending on the figures of the objects involved, this this action can actually be, be construed positively or negatively. So just, I suppose, to give an example from a Christian context, the idea or indeed the the image of uh, Christ trampling on the asp and the basilisk, so kind of negatively construed um, uh, animals, was seen as uh, a positive thing for, for Christ to be doing. Conversely, someone who's, say, accused of trampling on a cross was in almost all cases um, kind of understood to be doing something bad. So, trampling, we do have these negative associations with it, but um, but it might reflect well or poorly on the person um, expressing their uh, attitudes through this action. So, that, that was complicated to begin with. I mean, I should say that the physical environment was always my main focus of inquiry, but when it came to thinking about trampling, I did... Um, end up looking increasingly at, uh, at a sort of discourse of trampling, at the way in which trampling was discussed and used in texts as well. And there it seemed to be used to talk about religious identity, to talk about religious difference. It was almost as though what you were prepared to walk on defined who you who you were. And this was certainly evident within Christianity, so it was used to express distinctions between Greek and Latin Christians, for example, uh, even between different religious orders, but it was also being used to address distinctions between, um, between faith groups as well. So again, just, just as a kind of illustrative example, some uh, sources written by medieval Christians accuse Muslims are forcing Christians to walk on crosses or icons, and indeed some textual sources from the Islamic world also mention crosses being placed underfoot. So for both of these groups, both the action and the texts appeared to be using trampling as a way of talking about confessional uh, allegiance. Uh, and then and then it sort of becomes even more convoluted as it starts to you know people accuse other people of accusing them of of trampling uh, so it, it it you know it, it's multi it's multi-layered in that sense so that is i suppose a, a point of a point of commonality now i i really I'm aware that none of these faiths were monolithic, uh, that attitudes changed over time. I did get a sense or an impression of a spectrum of sensitivity to potential desecration underfoot. Um, And I, I got the sense that that Latin Christians were, were on the fairly insensitive end of the scale. They were most likely uh, to, uh, to be accused of walking on something that they shouldn't have been walking on or should have known, should have known better. Um, so there is some kind of a spectrum. But also when I looked uh, primarily for comparison at the Jewish and Islamic uh, context, it was also interesting to see how differing attitudes to imagery more widely were feeding into the significance of of walking on things, so I suppose in visual cultures with more reservations about representation, placing an image underfoot, or um, uh, reusing an object uh, with imagery on it, could in some way legitimize that presence of the image in a holy place or could legitimize uh, reusing the object uh, with an image. So in in that sense, there was an intersection between wider attitudes to imagery and um, cultures of reuse and uh, the phenomenon of of trampling on things. So
1: you mentioned that trampling was not always as negative as we thought. And in fact, as you said, this paired concept of chapters. how then, when, why, was standing on something done to connote positive meaning?
2: Indeed, yeah. I mean, so, so, so sort of something positive about both the person doing the standing and the thing, and the thing being trodden on. Um, it was
1: one of the more surprising <laughs> aspects of the book, if I'm honest. Um, so please explain, because I don't think I'm going to be the only one fascinated by this.
2: I suppose we don't denigrate a red carpet when we tread on it. We presume there's a nice symbiotic relationship between famous person and uh, and sort of uh, swanky swanky floor. So I suppose it's something a bit like that. But in a Christian context, this seemed to be taking place primarily um, in ecclesiastical settings, but but also I guess rituals that extended outside the church space as well. Um, but I mainly looked at it in terms, um, at least in that chapter, in in terms of traditions of floor decoration again so various elements um, of uh, designs of of paving both geometric and indeed figurative could act as liturgical markers they could tell you where to stand on particular occasions even though they were present in the church all the time they might come into play um, on these uh, particular kind of ritual ritual moments now I have to admit that I think probably some negatively construed images that were part of um, part of pavement designs. There's an example um, uh, in one church with with a basilisk uh, uh, at Otranto. There are also the gates of hell as part of a composition. Those sorts of elements might indeed invite the people who are using the church space. Uh, they might invite them to to trample uh, on those. Uh, particular elements of the design. They might um, allow people to imagine that they are, you know, construing their walking as as trampling in in that case. But for the most part, I suspect that liturgical markers had more positive uh, connotations. We find them in in rites of passage. They're used, uh, so things like um, ordination, uh, coronation ceremonies, and they're used to place both those people who are undergoing those ceremonies, who who are changing in status themselves, and the people who are officiating at those ceremonies. So in both those cases, I think that's another way in which the encounter with the surface of the ground is in some way expressive of identity. So in one case, it's about a changing identity, in the other, um, it's more about an identity to do with uh, with office holders, I suppose.
1: Huh. Okay, the red carpet idea I think makes a lot of sense. The <laughs> office holders—I'm now obviously thinking of celebrities as office holders in some strange way—and um, in fact, that leads me to the next question because you then go on to tell us about um, the the floors. Uh, so if we're no longer talking about just literally bare earth, we're now talking about some kind of flooring that was done intentionally, and in fact. You, in a lot of ways, kind of decode for us this language of the different colors and the different textures. So what was the meaning and significance of the floors having different colors, different textures, particular stones? Um, It's it's almost a secret language in this decorated
2: pavements in churches. Can you help us understand what meaning we might be missing now? (laughs) <laughs> I will give it a go. Um, what I should say first of all though is I suppose that I don't want to negate the way in which um, floor decoration um, and compositions of decorated paving conformed to different sort of traditions of workmanship, different sort of aesthetics, different demands. So it's certainly true that when you're in a church space with a with a decorated floor, the, the entire composition is less easy to take in on the ground than when you see it reproduced in a photograph, in a book, which is often um, a view taken from above. That said, they do function as a whole. And so I think a lot of the significance of different colors, um, for example, in uh, in the stones that are used to make up decorated paving um, it you know, is is as part of a wider composition that that, that makes sense when you look at the whole the whole floor. So what I'm not trying to do is to say kind of this approach has got has got all the answers to understanding the way in which these compositions work. So what I was particularly interested in doing was thinking about this from the perspective of the of the standing body or in fact sometimes uh, also the prostrate body. Because there you could see a certain correspondence between the identity of the person uh, and the material properties of the paving. So again, it is back a little bit uh, to uh, to the red carpet idea, except permanently there in uh, in, in the decoration of the church. So um, it is relatively high, often um, kind of relatively high status materials, so marble or hard stones like porphyry, um, sort of uh, a kind of dark purple. Uh, stone which was understood as marble at the time which were used for liturgical uh, for liturgical markers and again back to the red carpet porphyry um, at the time had imperial connotations and as such was particularly appropriate for, uh, ceremonies of uh, crowning emperors for example or or the investitures of um you know high up members of the of the of the clergy i suppose what i'm suggesting is that there was an, an element of likeness um between the status um of the uh, of of the the human and the uh, the status of the paving um of the paving element as well and that might be expressed through color um or uh, through the through the worth uh, of the Uh, of the material as well. And I confess, I sort of thought about person and surface underfoot uh, mirroring each other in these circumstances um, without really thinking about what a mirror does. And then sort of came to realize that actually some of these stones are also valued in this period because of their capacity um, to take on a polish, to have a sheen, and this actual mirroring, or this this sort of um, uh, the, the the polish on the surface, almost accentuated this effect of, of of mirroring. So it was really it was really intriguing to come across Dante's description of um, not not a, a, a an, not a church space per se, but. Um, of a of a space with with religious significance, certainly he describes the the different stone steps at the entrance to Purgatory, and so one uh, is is white marble. It's explicitly seen as uh, mirroring the poet uh, in his true likeness, and there's another there's another step which is described as being kind of dark and rough and cracked, and that is um, by commentators at least. Um, from, from the time and more modern ones, understood allegorically to symbolize uh, contrition. So we've got this sense of a shiny white marble step mirroring uh, kind of Dante the poet and another, another, another step rough and cracked that, that in some way symbolizes his inner his inner state so i don't think i've got the sort of secret to understanding floor floor decoration but i thought literally it was interesting that literary sources like this were were quite fruitful in suggesting ways in which contemporaries might have understood the um the floor surface of of churches that they um that they that they knew so um we don't we don't tend to have all that many interpretative texts uh dealing with the colors and textures of of paving but but um, some literary sources provide uh, a few insights
1: and in addition to the kind of colors and especially around coronations and things like that there was also um, some examples about um, almost using it as markers for processions and things like that that by interspersing different colors that almost made it easier if there was some sort of procession for a ceremony to kind of know when to pause or where to pause more accurately. Um, And it was really interesting thinking about how these decorations were quite interactive with the situations going on around them. Um, And you talk about that as well um, when you contrast different types of decorated paving elements. So I was wondering if you could tell us about uh, the similarities between figurative and non-figurative decorated paving.
2: In, in, indeed, yeah, and I mean, I, I, I like the. I think, I think. Um, I mean, as you say, in terms of the processional use as well, it is it is guiding people's movement um, around these around these uh, places um, in in really in really interesting ways. So, quite a lot of the scholarship on figurative paving, although by no means all of it, um, had, as I've said, sort of emphasised the constraints. That were placed on imagery by the fact it would be trodden on. It was really, I suppose, primarily scholars of um, of geometric paving, uh, the, the sort of porphyry roundels, um, that that kind of um, that kind of material, who'd been much more. Um, Willing to uh, imagine the ways in which it could it could guide people's steps. But actually, sort of harking back to the, the Otranto tree, the, 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 that tree going up the nave in, in um in the mosaic in Otranto Cathedral, in some cases it really did seem possible to suggest that images were acting as liturgical roots and and markers as well. So one example that I'd worked on separately and that I returned to in the book, hopefully in a a sort of less heavy and more concise way, was Navarra Cathedral. And there, um, images of the symbols of the four evangelists, so the writers of the Gospels, were were used as place markers. Um, They were known to be uh, the the locations where uh, four deacons would read passages from the Gospels during a particular pre baptismal ceremony. Uh, so, uh, uh, in this case, an image being used uh, where I think we'd been more, more accustomed to think about um, non figurative roundels. These are, in fact, images in roundels. So, here there seemed to be something really quite similar going on. There's a, there's a correspondence between the person and the marker just as we might find with a porphyry roundel and an emperor. You've got your evangelist symbol, whether that's, you know, Mark, um, uh, you know, Luke or or John, um, you know, these animals holding books, and then you've got the the deacons holding books um, uh, above them. So there is a a mirroring going on there too.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it...
2: hazard a guess that this is happening, but where it did seem to be taking place, it, it seemed to be um complex in interesting ways. So where images were involved, there also seemed to be a way in which liturgical engagement with these uh elements of the floor decoration animated the um animated these images and almost as if the participants in the liturgy are are giving voice um, to them, are speaking uh, for them, so that the deacons are kind of embodying the evangelists and speaking for them and for their symbols by the um, by, by the use of these, these elements. I suppose in a further complication that really only seemed to be the case where we were dealing with um, images underfoot was the way in which these configurations of images and bodies could suggest or could invoke other images or common iconographies. So I suppose um, what I have in mind is the way in which the evangelist symbols on the Navarra pavement and the deacon standing above them together resembled the representation of the evangelists and their symbols that you might find in gospel books, for example, but also in other, other forms of medieval art as well. Or to give you an example from, from Otranto, which uh, Christina ungru has, has, has written about, so interestingly, you might have a priest who is standing on uh, the doors of hell, which then resembles a representation of the harrowing of hell. So this, I suppose, is to move away from the embodied uh, idea of the person who is a participant in this configuration of layers, being aware of themselves um, in relation to the other uh, components and actually thinking about what it meant to witness these kind of markers in use, to think a bit more about um, the the viewership of this this kind of engagement with the the floor surface. Mm.
1: And if we talk about engagement, right, it's we're already starting to talk now we're moving sort of from just the pavement to how people interact with it um and so how did repetition relate to the significance
2: of this ground well uh here i'm on even less certain ground and uh and and saying that just makes me realize how how pun ridden a topic this is um but but yes i I think that that the intangible qualities of certain locations and certain parts of the floor surface also contributed or seems likely to have contributed to their aura and to their significance. So it's not just, I guess, form uh, and materiality and and potential kind of imagery, but also um, the the associations that might accrue to uh, a certain element, a uh, a certain place. And I suspect that use and repeated use uh, was one of those um, sort of intangible qualities. So where a particular place, where a particular marker had been used over a number of generations, you know, perhaps this added to their efficacy. We, we do see some evidence of this. So when um, when the, there is a uh, an effort to recreate the um The component parts of the um, kind of um, the coronation ceremony from St. Peter's in another location, so not in Rome, but in a church in Bologna, um, there is also an effort to recreate the floor markers as well. So there is a sense, I think, that these uh, take on a significance and uh, need need to be part of the need to be part of the, the ceremony. I think this was particularly key if the ritual in question involved um, either kind of entry into a community or joining a a long succession of office holders or indeed sort of taking leave of a community as as well. I suspect that some of these places weren't signaled by particular decorative elements that we can read today as Visitors to a church or as, as art historians going in, I think they were probably just known to the communities in question by convention. And some places may just have been significant only to individuals who used a spot repeatedly um, for prayer, for, for example. Although there are suggestions that that you know, could be recognised by other members of the congregation, for example, if they were uh, particularly, particularly pious. But there's an example of a lost pavement uh, from, from the Abbey of Marmoutier in Tours, and that um, really does make it quite explicit. It shows a dying monk uh, surrounded by his, um, by his brethren, so there are um, flanking figures of monks as well, in the very place uh, in an infirmary chapel where a monk might have been lain uh, on, on his deathbed. And so there, I think um, we've got sort of evidence that that communal use and that communal use over a number of generations contributed to the images too. So a, a monk uh, maybe participating in this in this ritual, um, being present when when someone was dying, might be able to think about people who had um, you know gone before, but also to imagine themselves being in that place in the future as well. I think this idea of repetition goes. Um, backwards and forwards uh, extends into the past, but also into the future as well. So I was interested in these these occasions where repetition uh, brought people together and in some way illustrated a shared identity. But at the same time, I I felt that there were there were occasions where one-off contact or really restricted contact with a place served to identify um people as unique or uh, not sharing many properties with others so i guess most clearly uh, the the um the vestigia the the holy footprints seem to indicate a much more um kind of unique identity most 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 obviously of course with um with the footprints associated with christ where you don't find people Using those places again in the same way, pilgrims don't tend to step in Christ's footprint. So, again, part of a, a sort of spectrum of of engagement, where repetition spoke of shared identity and uh, one-off contact and restricted uh, contact spoke of uh, unique identities that could could never quite be um, sort of shared with with other people.
1: Hmm. And so on this idea of unique, unique people, unique contexts, you talk as well in your book about temporary floor coverings, and particularly how this could function in the context of prostration as a way to make prostration more special, as a way to change what the floor mean at particular places by using a temporary floor covering. Um, and again, this kind of goes back to the Example we've used a number of times now for red carpet, (laughs) which is not permanent, they're rolled out at particular times or particular places. Um, Can you tell us more about temporary floor coverings and particularly around this idea of prostration?
2: Yes, I mean I, I, su- I suspect that one good reason for a temporary floor covering was to keep people's vestments clean. But apart from that, uh, I think there were also some 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 other reasons as well. I mean, you usually in researching this topic, I have been really struck by correspondences and, and continuities with um, with practices today. And and uh, you know, the, the good old red carpet is is definitely one of those. But I think in writing Chapter 5 on prostration, I was struck by the differences uh, as well in how temporary floor coverings were used or, or what one might think of as a temporary floor covering. So at least in, in, my, in my flat, at least, I, I might expect to leave a carpet down in a particular place for some time um, in fact, there are carpets in my parents' home that have not moved in in decades. But in the medieval context I was looking at, temporary floor coverings, usually textiles, but not exclusively so, so sometimes vegetation um, as well. It seems to have pertained much more exclusively to the person using the space for a short period of time. In other words, it does have more in common with the red carpet put down and rolled up for a specific set of people than the carpet that's been down in my front room for for a decade, and so they in in relating upwards, in relating to the people standing uh, and indeed lying on them, um, rather than permanently demarcating a place, they really seem to have um, kind of indicated a place that was apart from the surrounding area, that was often for prayer, but not not exclusively so. Um, and was appropriate to the person at that moment. I mean, within the Islamic world, which which I didn't examine, um, kind of m- more than um, very cursorily, as as uh, as a point of comparison, prayer carpets obviously indicating a direction for prayer as well. So, okay, I guess most immediately they they function vis-à-vis the surrounding space to to demarcate uh, a kind of often individual body-sized space for an action to to take place. But because of this stratigraphic approach, because of this interest in in layers, I was particularly interested by the way in which temporary floor coverings could function as part of a wider set of layers uh, to to sort of modulate in some manner the relationship between people and, and place. So, In some cases, this seems to have been um, sort of one element that exaggerated or extended uh, some aspect of the the permanent environment. So just thinking about um, the example potentially of of Westminster Abbey, where in the context of a a, a coronation ceremony, it's possible that silk was spread over the, the Cosmati pavement, which was itself already very materially rich. Um, So kind of amplifying the preciousness, amplifying the appropriateness of this place for a royal body prostrate over the top. But in other cases, kind of the, the layer cake effect seemed to take the edge off what lay beneath rather than to exaggerate or amplify it. So it might mitigate against a potentially degrading context. There's um, an instance of um, a case in which some relics were being taken on a journey. They needed to be placed on the ground to create a certain uh, effect. But in order to um, perhaps placate the saints involved, a pallium is spread Over the bare ground and under the relics. So they are placed on the ground, that is signifying um, something, but the pallium is perhaps mitigating against uh, the the sort of over humility of of that position. But we can almost see the potentially see the opposite. Uh, So, in in one case, um, uh, in in the Abbey of of Farfa, potentially in, in central Italy, there's the possibility that. Um, in a context where there was quite a materially rich church setting maybe with marble marble paving uh, in order to humiliate their relics they may have spread a hair shirt uh, in other words um, a very sort of prickly and unpleasant cloth over the marble and then put the relics on top so quite how one you know sort of interprets these these layers, uh, their associations and their materiality is, uh, is to a certain extent speculation, but um, they, they often work in interesting ways with permanent decoration as well as, or at least the permanent context, as well as the body of the person uh, treading on them.
1: Mm. And it's this contextual changing element that I think makes it so fascinating. Um, and the idea that it can be both used to amplify as well as, um, almost make worse in a way. (laughs) And the idea that it's kind of, that it's both at the same time leads me to the last section of the book, um, which is about underneath the ground burials. Um, and this is quite obviously an area in which there would be a lot of thought going into it and rules about where you can and cannot walk, um, but I'm really glad you tackled this because it's certainly quite common to go into especially very old churches and see that people are quite literally buried under the floor, not in a cemetery or somewhere else or a place that you cannot walk over, but slabs just as part of the normal area to walk. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who has always sort of wondered, should I be walking on this? <laughs> um, surely I there's not a good way to go around it, so... But why would someone maybe they ran out of space? Um, and so I was really glad that you addressed this in the book um, because this is such a prevalent thing, and I'm sure I'm not the only one with the question. So, why did people request
2: to be buried in places where their graves would actually be walked on? Yes, I mean, I, I similarly feel that freestyle myself. I notice people too being wary of of treading on graves and and grave markers, but in the context of medieval Christianity at least, and I I mean this is definitely within the Christian context, I I think other faiths have other attitudes uh, to this in the Middle Ages, but within um, the medieval Christian context and certainly within the Latin West, this could be positively embraced. So these kinds of testimonies are coming in, um, in in people's wills where they they actually ask to be buried where they might be trodden on. Uh, sometimes in a vein of humility, I suspect. Sometimes they don't actually end up where they asked to be buried. Um, but also, I think, with the desire to be kept in mind and to be remembered in people's, um, in people's prayers. So I think if you are... Um, Finding yourself kind of wondering, should I should I tread on this on this grave? Yes, do so. Read the inscription. Think about the person, um, kind of beneath who probably um, expected that to to happen. So some people said, you know, to be buried where everyone can tread on me. They they were interested in that sense of of, of I guess treading perhaps communal awareness. But other people were really quite specific in their requests and. Their requests seem to have related in some way to the person's identity in life. So, some were quite refer- self referential. Some people asked to be buried where they had sat um, or knelt in, in life. So, that's sometimes that's to do with the later medieval practices of, of owning particular places in, in, in pews, for example. But in other cases, it does seem to be about a, a, a more, um, you know, a closer uh, relationship with the ground. Um, So that's lay people often, but priests could ask to be buried close to the altar where they might in fact be positioned under the body of the priest, um, kind of uh, celebrating the Eucharist. So lots of people would have liked to be buried in that position. But for uh, a priest, being buried there was suggestive, I suppose, of perpetuating the activities done in life as, as though... Um, the person celebrating in the present was in, in some way perpetuating uh, their their life, their identity, their, their raison d'etre as a, as a cleric. I think mm. the request requests of those nature, both from the laity and from the clergy, are also interesting for, for the indication that people are imagining their location after death in terms of the ground beneath their feet um, so that Whilst they are uh, sort of walking through the church space, they think of themselves in the future being um, immediately beneath uh, beneath the ground in that that same space. So it's, I guess, one um, aspect of the embodied awareness of layering um, that that I was interested in, um, in, in thinking about. But you, you, you spoke um, about the sort of dynamism of the, of the church uh, interior that, that's illustrated partly by the use of these temporary floor coverings. I think it's, it's fascinating that burial requests also acknowledge that as well, um, so that they might people might ask for burial under particular halting spots um, for, for processions. So they would know, they would have a sense of how um, people moved around Church space, and they would ask to be buried under particular um, halting points where prayers might be said. And conversely, I guess, in in turn, burial markers will have shaped the the way in which um, kind of movement happened within church spaces as well. So once people had their marker, it might very well be uh, a marker for movement as well as uh, one signifying the body that lay beneath.
1: This is a whole new area of thinking, I think, Um, but at least I do now know what um, I'm meant to do in a church when I encounter (laughs) such slabs on the floor. Um, So in addition, obviously, to this podcast, helpfully introducing people to your book, um, you've given us some practical advice as well, um, which is very helpful. Um, And hopefully this also gives listeners a taste of the number of areas in which um readers who are not experts on medieval christian churches will likely learn a lot from your book um and so if you've enjoyed this uh podcast so far you you might want to go read the whole thing because we've not been able to cover all of the bits um but we have i hope covered the main points to now move towards sort of behind the scenes bit now that you've sort of introduced us to the main aspects talked through them um you've obviously engaged with this topic for quite a long time in a lot of detail was there anything in particular that surprised you in the course of writing this? Something big or small, maybe even something that didn't make it into the final book?
2: It's something very small. And it's something quite practical you 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 saying about, you know, knowing knowing what to do um when you're when you're next in a church. I mean, I think it's it's probably become evident from our conversation and, and it's perhaps most evident in the book itself in terms of the introduction and the conclusion, but I have really been fascinated by by ways in which we can see parallels between what what was going on in the uh, in the middle Ages and and what the environments that we walk our way around uh, you know today. So there've been lots of parallels that I didn't find particularly uh, surprising, I suppose, um, but really just sort of nice, nice evidence of, of, of continuities of, of particular, particular practices. You know, when I walk across a, a pelican crossing, I think about this research topic, uh, for <laughs> example. Um, what I didn't expect was to have a whole new set of floor barking conventions come in as a result of the pandemic. I didn't expect to be told how to navigate my local co-op, my local supermarkets. Um with a, a, a series of temporary roundels they were even round um, i couldn't i couldn't believe it uh, i felt as though the sort of cosmati um pavements of of medieval rome were in some way brought um you know brought into the um the, the sphere of a, of a sort of small of a small supermarket in bristol and i had my liturgical uh, procession around um you know the, the three aisles <laughs> that we had at our disposal <laughs> Uh, so uh, it did keep me smiling in in lockdown. To find my my you know, and as I queued up for my um, you know for my jab, um, I was also being uh, guided through these these ephemeral spaces often enough uh, with um, what turned out to often be ephemeral markers as well. So it was a surprise to have a whole new set of of floor markers to to bring into the equation.
1: <laughs> I think that's a really lovely um, surprise to have us talk about because it does come up at the end of your book that you essentially ask readers to if you take nothing else spend more time thinking about the ground um and thinking about the markers on it and the social practices around it and what or whom is underneath where you're standing or above where you're standing um so that's a really lovely way to finish the interview as well as finishing the book um, and so then for my last question, um, you did just publish this book. So the answer could be, I'm taking a break. Um, but what are you working on now or next?
2: So there are there are a couple of, because I did take so long to write it, um, there are a couple of um, sort of uh, ongoing investigations that have developed out of the project. So So one avenue of inquiry was inspired by, well, that tension, I suppose, I, I, I mentioned quite early on between the la- this interest in the layering of elements and the cross-section format that I'd obviously had in my mind when I started to think about them and, and that being a more modern or at least a more perhaps early modern phenomenon, even though there are some medieval examples. So I have done some work on views through the ground, um, especially actually in mining, in mining contexts. So <laughs> that's been um, a sort of unexpected uh uh, tangential, uh, relatively circumscribed um, kind of investigation. The bigger project takes the environmental relics that I mention uh, in, in the first chapter as its as its starting point. And I'm interested in thinking about the portability of, of place. So where in the book I was very much thinking about static places that people engaged with in dynamic ways, now I'd, I'd like to think much more about how places move Mm. um so the symbolic movement of soil in a variety of contexts so religious certainly um but also other other contexts as well legal um and and political um medical even so the ways in which um i guess the portability of place was affected through uh through the movement of of earth so it's still about the ground but it's not necessarily holy and it's not uh it's not staying uh, where it was put well That sounds like a wonderful book. So
1: hopefully it will get written up as a book and you can maybe come back and tell us about it when it's ready. Um, But in the meantime, listeners can read your current book, which is again titled Standing on Holy Ground in the Middle Ages, published by Cornell University Press in 2022. Dr. Lucy Duncan, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you very much indeed for the, um, for the invitation. I hope I haven't gone on too long. <laughs> it's a long book.
1: <laughs> it, we learned a lot. So thank you very much.